just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, Boris Johnson breaks cover and speaks to The Spectator about his plans for Brexit and beyond. Stateside, the presidential election is hotting up as Democratic candidates fight for the nomination. And finally, we ask, why are people so obsessed with being in a relationship? First, as postal ballots for the Tory leadership contest are sent out to party members this weekend, Boris Johnson makes a final leadership pitch. This time, in an interview with our political editor James Forsyth and deputy political editor Katie Balls. Katie and James are joined by Andrew Jimson, sketch writer and author of a biography on Boris Johnson. In this week's Spectator, James and I interview Boris Johnson. The Tory leadership frontrunner tells us why he believes his rival Jeremy Hunt's Brexit plan is the height of folly. He goes into the details of his no-deal Brexit plan and he explains why, despite some negative press, he believes that actually he can be an asset to the Scottish Conservatives. James, what struck you most from that interview? Well, there are kind of three Boris interview modes. The first is when he is playing it for laughs. He wants to be verbally entertaining more than anything else. That was definitely not the case in this interview. There was an intensity about him, but there but there isn't normally. And he was being quite closely guarded. He didn't want to say anything that was going to be uh, perceived as a gaffe. Uh, the second type of Boris, which I interview, which I nearly all journalists will be familiar with, is, is when he essentially filibusters you. He knows that you've got 40 minutes with him, and the answer to the first question takes 29 minutes, and the answer to the second question takes 11 minutes, and you go, ah, oh, right. It's amazing, you didn't um, get to any of the difficult issues. Uh, time's up. And he wasn't in that mode either. Instead, he was trying to pump out his campaign messages you know you know deliver brexit unite the party defeat corbyn you know and he kept wanting to kind of come back to those points and he's enough of an he's enough of a journalist still but he's kind of apologetic about his desire to go back and hammer you over the head with these points but i think this is i think this is someone who knows that the ball has come loose from the to use his own analogy the ball has come loose from the back of a scrum and he's currently in his hands and currently if he can just keep running without dropping it he's going to he is going to score this try. And I think that that is definitely why he is more, both more cautious and more focused than you might instinctively expect. Andrew, you are a long-time observer of Boris Johnson. What strikes you as different, if anything, about the Boris Johnson we have seen in this leadership campaign? I think he has learned from some of his mistakes. Uh, he's realised it was hardly a campaign. It was so short after the referendum in... 2016, but... How many days was it? It was from the Friday morning, a breakfast, when David Cameron resigned. Then on Saturday, Gove confirmed that he would be backing Boris. And then at two minutes past nine on the following Thursday, so a week after polling day, Gove put out his his amazing statement in which he said he thought Boris was unfit to be... Which I can't remember exactly the wording, but he's, the, the gist of it was that he'd come to the sad conclusion that Boris was unfit to be Prime Minister and he was going to run himself. So it was really only from Friday morning until the following Thursday morning. Uh, and, this maximum. Ta- <laughs> and this time around, he's, got, he's gone well past the six-day mark. Yes. Would you say it's a more professional outfit? Yes, it is more professional. And the parliamentary stage 
was more professional as well because that's where he was extremely weak and where in, in 2016 Gove had a much better parliamentary organisation and Johnson didn't know a lot of them and those who did know him were often jealous of him because he'd sort of breeze in and get acres of publicity and they would toil away in some bill committee for month after month and no one would pay any attention to them at all. So he was a, a positively irritating figure as far as most MPs were concerned. This time having James Wharton, who is one of the... Well, of course, he lost his seat, but he's one of the newer MPs, so he could communicate with the newer people who Boris didn't even really know. Um, and the whole thing... Uh, they, he seems to have realised that he couldn't af- afford to be slapdash about that another time. Now, before we get to Boris Johnson's plans, if he does make it into number 10, as he lays out in this week's Spectator, I was wondering, James, one of the criticisms of his campaign so far is the idea that he has perhaps too many chefs or there's too many camps backing him. And Andrew touched on uh, the old guard who were with him in 2016 when he ran for leader. What are the various factions around Boris Johnson this time around? The, the first of all, the London, the City Hall crew. Eddie Lister, Will Walden, all those people who were there with him when he was mayor of London. Then kind of kind of linked to that, there is the kind of Crosby text of Fulbrook, the political operation that ran those election campaigns. And Mark Fulbrook is is kind of running this bit of the, the members bit of the campaign. Then you've got his his parliamentary long marches, the people who stuck with him all the way through. They kind of Jake Barry, Ben Wallace, all those people. And I think Boris feels a, a sense of loyalty to him because it is worth remembering that you know, about a year ago, pe- people had completely written him off. And these were the people who, who were kind of still there, still saying, you can still do this. You know, Connor Burns, his old uh, Foreign Office PPS, who's kind of stuck with him all the way through this process. Then you have the, the people who came on board who essentially the old whips off his hands, essentially, you know, the kind of kind of Gavin Williamson, James Walton, Simon Hart, these people, who who gave him that parliamentary operation, which was a remarkable achievement in a way, because I think when everyone previously had discussed Boris, his chance of making the members round, it had always been this idea, could he get to a third of the MPs so that he could get on the ballot? And instead, he, could have, he had more than 50% of the support of the parliamentary party and enough votes to basically determine who his opponent is, which is, you know, I don't think anyone expected that to be the case. And then I think then on top of that, you then have a kind of men of government types, you know, the Matt Hancocks, the Oliver Dowdens, who are the people who kind of know Whitehall well, who are backing him in those circumstances. I think the, I gather the Vicar of Bray has come on board, actually. So yeah, that's a real Philip for the Johnson campaign. One of the problems Boris Johnson has encountered, particularly this week, is this idea that he doesn't do detail, at least not in the same way as his rival Jeremy Hunt. And with Jeremy Hunt taking on a sharper turn towards speaking up, no deal, um, Boris Johnson has come under pressure to do the same. Do you think Johnson has managed to show that he has a grasp of what exactly he'd do? So in our interview, he was basically saying that you know, there were three things that needed to be done to get ready for no deal. You need to you know, get some kind of deficiency payments ready for the bits of the agricultural sector that are going to be hardest hit in the event of no deal. You need to get SMEs ready who don't export to anyone other than EU countries, basically hook them up with a customs agent so they know what to do. And obviously, this is the hardest of these three asks. You need to get power sharing back up and running in Northern Ireland so there's a kind of functioning executive there to deal with us. I personally don't think that Boris Johnson should try and compete with Jeremy Hunt on detail. That is not the territory in which I think Boris Johnson wants to fight. And I think 
he's also making an argument about a different way of running government. We have just had, a, or we, we currently have a Prime Minister in Theresa May, who does detail, but arguably doesn't do anything other than detail. And we've seen that, that that just simply doesn't work. I think his argument should be that he is going to have kind of competent people around him. He is going to set the vision, but he isn't intending to be kind of personally down at Dover inspecting the, the lorry lanes and which one is going into which, uh, into which lane or, and on which motorway. I mean, this is not the aim. I think the, the bigger challenge to Boris, which is the thing I'm, I, I don't know if you were struck by this, Katie, but the thing I was struck by in the interview is he is completely and utterly convinced that by putting no deal on the table, you change the dynamic of the negotiations and get a deal. At one moment, he looked rather pained and said, Look, everyone knows that I don't want a disorderly no-deal Brexit. Because he, I, think he, I think he genuinely thinks that by putting it on the table, he will prevent it from happening. And I think the, kind of, the question for him is, you know, how advanced is his thinking on plan B if the EU essentially try and call his bluff? What do you think of that, Andrew? Do you think that he would be willing to actually go through with no deal if it looks as though the EU are not going to offer this last-minute concession that he appears to be banking on? I think you'll have a gleam in his eye that the European Union may have other things to think about, may be completely fed up with this. And uh, if things go very badly wrong in, for example, Italy, but there are, about, there are many other places where something could go badly wrong with the euro or some other great an evident and urgent challenge could face the European Union and therefore they want to settle Brexit even if they're not no longer being quite so purist about the terms on which they'll settle it. He, he'll, one of Boris's strengths, both as a journalist and as a politician, is that he's extremely quick at telling when the wind changes, when the story changes, when the story is suddenly in some completely unexpected place. When he was working in Brussels, he was on the next tr- plane to Belgrade when suddenly the Balkans were exciting and Brussels wasn't. Now, one of the other things Boris Johnson talks about in this interview is the fact that he is going to have to give up his bike. He already has given up his bike in preparation, banned by his team, and he speaks of his dislike of air conditioning in ministerial cars. Now, perhaps this isn't the headline news, but I wondered whether, Andrew, you thought this feeded into this idea that Boris Johnson is someone who might find the highest office in the land in some ways constraining. I think everyone does. Uh Alec Douglas Hume hated it that he wasn't allowed to walk. He felt it when, if he was in London, he really needed to walk. And his security people didn't want him to walk even as far as the House of Commons. So it's not a new problem. But I think he will find it constraining. On the other hand, he's, he's fertile and expedient. He will find ways, not exactly of subverting this, but presumably he'll still be allowed to go running, won't he, as long as there are enough... <laughs> well, yes, he did, he, I would thought almost anyone could keep up with him. I mean, almost any policeman. He does um, say he feels bad for his security team. Oh, you have to he? make yes. the pace of a of an elderly man. His his words, not not my insult. So. <laughs> James, what what do you think? I think from a lot of people, this would sound like a humble brag. Oh, the problem with ministerial cars here, the air conditioning is awful. I think though, this is a genuine thing. When he was foreign secretary, he famously once gave his um, security detail the slip, much to their rage i think there is going to be a challenge for him about the kind of he is someone who whose self-perception is very much of themselves as a free spirit but i think the kind of political version of this question is how long is he prepared to be disciplined in the way that he was in this interview i thought if you think back to that rather chaotic bbc debate early in the leadership contest for the first 40 minutes boris was johnson was very on message, you know, and and didn't enter into arguments. You know, was just doing his kind of talking points. I and mean, you could tell in the last twenty minutes he was getting progressively more bored with being 
so constrained and and he, and he wanted to kind of put the fizz back into the champagne if you see it. and he he just he, as, he, as, as the evening went on he found it harder and harder not to try and kind of score the debating points or make the quick quip and i think that one of the challenges for him i think as as prime minister is he's going to have to find some middle ground between the old kind of carefree Boris and being disciplined because he's got to not forget that what people like about him is that he doesn't sound like any other politician that he doesn't he has you know if you what his you know when he his success as mayor of London is a, a huge amount of it stemmed from the fact that he didn't behave like an identical politician so the challenge to him is is how to kind of keep that ability to connect and communicate with people but to do it in a disciplined fashion i mean that is that is the challenge you jokes for a purpose one might say do you think as soon if if he does get the keys one of his first things will be to do andrew is to relax and show this more jovial side again well i think he i think he is astute enough to know that his public do like that and they like a, an official person who doesn't behave with unrelenting pomposity and and gravity. So I think he he'll he'll realize he can do that, but he'll also he'll know that there are certain occasions when he may even surprise us by being more solemn or or more nervous, more apparently nervous on on various occasions. I think but the thing is that he I mean just at the moment having written a, a biography of him of which the first edition came out as late as, as long ago as 2006 and I started working on it on 2004, people have always loved talking about him and they still do and just now, they're they're sort of ringing up from all over the world, saying, "Can we interview you about Boris?" And I haven't. I mean, I think there are probably some biographical subjects where you get bored of them. I haven't got bored of him actually, and nor do I feel that anyone has. He's quite an elusive figure. Although people think they know Boris, he is also very good at veiling his true thoughts about some on some subjects. Now, finally, I'm going to ask you both to look into your crystal ball, which I, which I know you'll be loath to do, because we are in the most important week of the Tory leadership contest. Postal ballots go out at the weekend, and the expectation from previous is that members will send them in very quickly. So the race could be decided, still a few weeks for it to be announced. So I was wondering, in what circumstances can you envision Boris Johnson not making it to number 10? And Jeremy Hunt taking the prize. I think it's incredibly... Well, that's not exactly crystal ball, is it? I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe my questions... I thought you were going to, going to ask me for the precise voting figures. Which... <laughs> we, we can do that too. <laughs> we can have the scenarios. Um, um, yes, no, I don't have the figures to hand in my crystal ball. But some there would have to be some catastrophic loss of trust in Boris. Whereas at the moment, I think quite a lot of people, there's an almost willing suspension of disbelief. And he, I think his manner... I haven't yet read your magisterial interview with him, but I think his manner is generally becoming more businesslike, actually, and more grown up. So um, I, he he he'd have to do something really terrible, wouldn't he? I think to lose it. Although Hunt is making a Hunt. Is, I mean, for year for a very long time they couldn't decide who the stop Boris candidate was. His opponents that they then found nine stop Boris candidates, which was a really ridiculous number. Now at least Hunt is the only stop Boris candidate, but uh, I think it probably is too late for a successful. Stop Boris movement. 
In fact, the party would feel terribly disappointed if he didn't get it, I think. I mean, the, I mean, the biggest danger to Boris Johnson is kind of tactical voting that goes wrong. I, I'm not entirely sure whether the electorate meant to deny the Tories a majority in 2017, if, but I think a lot of people didn't want to give them a mega majority, and the result was a hung parliament. The danger, I think the, the biggest danger to Boris Johnson is something like that. I still think that is relatively unlikely. I think that what Tory members care about, the two things they care about are beating Corbyn and delivering Brexit. And I think on both those measures, the bulk of Tory members think that Boris Johnson is ahead of Jeremy Hunt. And I don't and I, I don't think that's... The Hunt campaign claim they are making progress on turning people's opinion around on those questions. But in private, I don't find even very kind of senior figures in the Hunt campaign thinking that they're making quick enough progress on that front. To, to stop Boris Johnson, given that, as, as as you were saying in your question, you know, when the ballot papers go out this weekend, most people will think about it and post it back on Monday morning. Thank you, James. Thank you, Andrew. Next, the Democrats are gearing up for the 2020 presidential elections, but is Trump going to win again? In this week's issue, Lionel Shriver complains that none of the Democratic presidential candidates, even though there are 24 of them, seem like they can beat Trump. So, is she right? I'm joined by Brian Class, political scientist at UCL and host of a new podcast series called Power Corrupts, and Kate Andrews, US politics commentator. Brian, in this week's magazine, Lionel Shriver asks, where is the Democrat who can beat Trump? I mean, do you think she's right that there isn't really an obvious candidate at this stage? No, I don't. Um, the matchups in the head-to-head polling that we've seen so far have shown that most of the Democratic candidates currently would beat Trump, and some of them by a significant margin. So the most recent head-to-heads I've seen have by Joe Biden, uh, Barack Obama's former vice president, up by about 10 points. That you know narrows a bit when you get down the ticket to people like uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Kamala Harris slightly less, Elizabeth Warren slightly less, but still all of them clear ahead of Trump right now. So uh, I, I think it's very early on. We have to remember that at this stage in the race in twenty in the twenty sixteen campaign, Jeb Bush was the front runner in the in the Republican primary. So a lot is going to happen before we determine who's the Democratic nominee. Kate, for listeners who might not know, can you take us through what the process will be for them finding a candidate? So in different states, they have different rules. So you'll either have to be signed up, registered as a Democratic voter, but in some states, independents will be allowed to vote. And they'll go state by state, but there'll be certain days where lots of states vote at the same time. And you will see a whittling down of the candidates. This usually happens pretty quickly when you have so many candidates in the race. But I think the Democrats are slightly at risk at pulling a bit of a Republican 2016 primary, where you have so many people in the race that certain people might start getting through with a relatively small percentage of the vote. Something that's interesting right now is that Joe Biden leads almost every single poll for the Democratic primaries, but he doesn't really get above 30%. It fluctuates between 20 and 30%. Now, and some of those more left-wing candidates to the socialist spectrum of the party were able to coalesce around one candidate, they might be able to start matching Biden and actually get ahead of him. Brian, I mean, Biden's fairly old. I mean, do you think he's too old for the job? Well, if that were true, then Trump would be too old for the job because they're similar ages. I think, you know, Bernie Sanders is is even older than Biden, and he's in the top tier of candidates as well. So, you know, I think there is a a fight in the Democratic Party for the soul of the party right now from the left and the center, and also about age. And so you have somebody like Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, whose surge recently put up some very impressive numbers in terms of his uh, campaign donations, about $25 million in the second quarter. He's 37 years old, right? I mean, he's, he's less than half of the age of Biden. So th- there's a massive spectrum in this, in this primary. And I think that's exactly what the process is supposed to do. It's supposed to allow the party to determine who the standard bearer should be going forward. 
But yes, I, I do think that at some point you have to think about age, especially if you're talking about a two-term president, um, because if you're in your late 70s when you're elected, I mean, the idea of somebody being in their late 80s by the time they leave office might be a bit much for some voters. Okay, what sort of candidate do you think the Democrats will be wanting to choose? Oh, I think they're fundamentally torn on that. And this speaks to Brian's point about fighting for the soul of the party. If we look back to the midterms, it was the moderates in the Democratic Party who did well and took the House back for the Democrats. But clearly there is this lurch to the left. Bernie Sanders started it in 2016, and it's been picked up by actually most of the candidates in the primaries. Elizabeth Warren talking about economic nationalism, Kamala Harris talking about rent controls. They're moving to the left, so we'll see this battle. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced that every Democrat could beat Trump. I think Joe Biden is without question most likely because his whole shtick will be, I can I can truly unify the country. We can have a bit of a pause on the radical politics and we can take things back to normal. But I think the radical direction that the others would go in, when you actually get to the mainstream campaign, would worry a lot of Americans. Uh, not simply in terms of the rhetoric of overthrowing capitalism, but if you, we just look at Hillary Clinton, her you know relatively light-touch comments about green energy and manufacturing and the jobs that might go are what pushed the Rust Belt into Trump's territory, at least one of the reasons that they went into Trump's territory. I think the can- most of the candidates we have right now would go even more radical on that topic. Brian, what do you think the lessons were from 2016? And do you think the Democrats have, have learned them? I actually, I actually disagree a little bit with Kate on this one, because I think that the lessons of 2016, to my mind, are that Voters don't want a Washington insider. They don't want someone with a lot of political baggage. And they want someone who's a fresh start for the country. Now, I'm genuinely torn on this because I think there is a view, which Kate very well articulated just now, which is to say that Biden is a centrist candidate and people are going to vote on policies and therefore he'll get the biggest tent, which means he'll attract independents, he'll attract some moderate Republicans who find Trump distasteful, and he'll also capture all the Democrats. The other point of view, though, is to say that as a Washington insider, that's actually going to alienate a lot of people who want change. And that more exciting, if you look at Democratic candidates in the past, are people like Barack Obama, who are viewed as outsiders, right? Not the Washington insiders. If you think about the Al Gores of the the past, they lost. Hillary Clinton lost. Barack Obama won. Bill Clinton won. And so there's an argument to be made that says that a lot of people are not actually voting on policy. They're voting on personality. They're voting on change messages. They're voting on the idea that this is not Trump. It's a specific foil to him, but it's not also the Washington insider. And so I think that's the big question the Democrats are going to have to answer because it is quite possible that somebody like Kamala Harris will catch fire and really excite people and not have some of the baggage that Joe Biden had, even though she might have more radical policies on health care, which is a big divide in the party. But, you know, it's also one of these things where that that message, which Trump, you know, ran on, even though he's not governing on in terms of, you know, expanding healthcare programs, is somewhat popular with the American public. And Kate, what do you think would be a greater challenge for Trump, a a younger candidate or an older candidate? It definitely depends on who the candidate is, but I think Joe Biden is the biggest threat to Donald Trump. Uh, I think if you look at the swing state areas and you look at what those voters care about and represent, I think someone like Joe Biden taps into where he was successful, taps into a white working class mentality. The thing about Joe Biden is that while he has been in Washington for decades, he's extremely well liked. Uh, For many people, being in Washington for decades means they have horror stories about you, right? And people are really having to 
work hard to drudge up things that they don't like about Joe Biden. Republicans respect him. Moderates respect him. Independents respect him. And I think the level of debate that he could bring during that that main campaign would impress a lot of Americans. I mean, the question is, do you want to get into this grudge battle between too populous, or do you want the adult to enter back into the room? And, you know, we'll see. And well, the Democrats are actually going to get to decide because they're going to pick the primary candidate. You know, both will be interesting, but very distinct. I suspect that if there's an adult in the room, they may win because it hasn't actually been four years yet, but it already feels like quite a long time. And fine, I'm just going to ask you both to gaze into your crystal balls. What do you think Trump's chances are of winning next year? Well, a lot can change, but I think right now he would lose if the election was tomorrow. And so if the dynamics continue to hold, I think he will lose. Again, with a very big caveat that a lot can change. I also think that the economic trends are not positive. And, and you know, Trump's approval rating, which has gone between about 35% on the low end and about 45% on the high end, is the narrowest band of any president in American history. So what I think is really striking about this, which will defy all of the other punditry from the past, is that there are persuadable voters in every other election in American history. In this election, there is a very narrow band of people who have not made their mind up about Donald Trump. Most people either love him or hate him. They do not. There's not a lot of middle ground, and that's why you see these extremes. So if that's the case, then all the Democrats need to do is ensure that the 55 to 60 percent of people who have said, I will never vote for Donald Trump in recent polls, continue to stick to that message and then and vote for the Democrat. And that's that's going to be the challenge. But right now, I would be worried if I were his advisors. Okay. Voting for the Democrat is key because turnout will matter. But let's look back to 2016. There basically wasn't a poll that Donald Trump was leading, and yet he, he won the day. Uh, don't underestimate him. I think it is possible he could win now. It would depend on who he's running against. It would depend on what the message was in those key areas where people are particularly fearful of losing their jobs. Uh, you know, there's a debate about the, the way that um, the country's going economically, but right now things are very good. And those tax breaks did put more money back into people's wallets, and people will have felt that jobs are pretty good. Uh, it's a good time, you know, based on history, to be running for re-election so I certainly wouldn't rule them out. Thank you Kate and Brian. And finally what's all the fuss about being in a relationship? In this week's issue Elisa Seagrave says she's been single for 30 years and loves it. She's increasingly baffled by the idea that everyone must find a permanent companion. After all being single means you can leave parties whenever you like and watch all of the rubbish tv that you want. And aren't couples just tediously codependent? Lisa joins me now, together with Sophia Money Coots, columnist for the Sunday Telegraph and author of The Plus One. Lisa, in this week's issue, you talk about being single and what you like about it. Can you take us through what it is that you enjoy? Well, I'm now nearly 70 and I suddenly realise I don't have to think about getting into a, a relationship if I don't want to. I suddenly realise how much I'm enjoying myself doing things on my own. I always have been independent. I suddenly realise I'm actually really enjoying it. What sorts of things in particular? Um, well, I, as I said in the article, I, I don't really like cooking, so I don't have to cook very much. I eat when I want to. I um, talk to myself. I watch weird TV programmes to relax. I do a lot of my own writing, and I can do that when I want to without thinking about routines with meals for other people. And I, Also, I like going to the films on my own because I, often the person with you doesn't like it. or It's, it's a, quite a different experience. I prefer it. I live too close to some very good cinemas. So I, I often go at the last minute, that kind of thing. 
Sophia, you've you've recently split from someone and mm. have written about it. So yes. I hope you don't mind. Obviously, no. <laughs> quizzing you on it. Um, how I mean, how have you adjusted to single life? And what did you what did you make? Uh, well, it was piece? horrible, obviously at first, and you know, you sort of wail in my bedroom. But no, now I have to say, so it's like seven months on. And oh, yes, I'm with Elisa. I kind of love it. It's that thing of exactly being able to, I can eat supper if I want at six o'clock and then go to bed or have a bath and be in bed by nine o'clock. Yeah, you can just totally be your own individual person and not have to spend time with sort of, you know, their friends or, you know, you can just do your own thing and not have to worry or not. Also, that's the other thing, not have your mood dictated by someone else. That's what I love. If you're a lone agent, a sort of even minor squabble or just a tiny thing that they might have done that could have pissed you off it doesn't you don't get that you can just be your own person and much happier I think. Sophia do you think married couples treat single people differently? I think so I'm 34 yes I think at my age I've got certain single girlfriends who are sort of panicking a little bit and you can see the married couples or the couples sometimes feeling a bit sort of sorry and thinking oh god last chance saloon and the other thing that people do which really bugs me and I've had this one girlfriend has done this to me before she'll go oh I know someone single and it's that thing of you're single and he's single (laughs) therefore you must meet and I think it happens with gay people as well they go oh I've got a gay friend you must meet and it's like no 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 you've got to maybe have a bit more in common than that (laughs) Elisa have you had that yeah I've got a friend who's very kind and generous she's she's appears to be happily married for a long time but she's she's younger than me but she they do bicker but she exactly as you say she didn't even know me she was trying to get me off with her widow her father (laughs) who's much older than me I now know her much better but she's doing it all the time she's She's trying to be kind, but she's not thinking who gets on with who. I said to her husband only two days ago, I said, look, you've got to, you know, that it's not always a good thing to introduce her single women friends to that particular man. There's a good reason that he's on his own. (laughs) 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 One of the funniest bits of your piece is where you talk about people showing off about having a husband. Can you you tell us a little (laughs) bit about that? (laughs) No, it's a thing I said that it's a form of boasting to say these frightful habits say their frightful habits oh I mean I remember this it was an ex-boyfriend of mine and they came to see me a long time ago and he literally had a tantrum because she had put on red nail polish he's shouting at her to take it off it was some stupid rule he had but then there's other things like you know like I said in uh, a relation of mine has uh, actually, he doesn't seem very dominating to me, but she seems to like sort of saying, "Oh, he, he always if we if I come with him to such and such a uh, Mallorca, oh, we have to go to a big hotel." I mean, it's actually true that she get she goes to a modest, but she will always give in, and it's it's, not, it's sort of deferring to the husband unnecessarily. Actually, do you think there's pressure on women to be in be in a couple? Uh, yes, I think. Yes, definitely. Certainly, again, at my age, 100%. But I'm actually I'm writing a piece about this at the moment. That for women my age, we're very lucky in a way that, I mean, I think, I haven't totally decided, I think I do want to have children at some stage. And actually, these days, there are more options available to us than ever before. I don't have to sort of marry the next person who comes along because I want to make that happen. It's amazing, really, that, you know, even 10 years ago, this might have been much harder. And I might have thought sort of harder about breaking up with my ex. And now, actually, I'm seriously thinking about in a couple of years sort of doing it by myself and that I think is is a real freedom mm. my grandmother I remember who's very wise said to me a lot of women that she knew had married just to have children yeah. in her generation I suspect a lot of my girlfriends yeah. a lot of the weddings I've gone to that's you know we can we're all delaying things and we're doing things later in life but the one thing you can't really play around with is biology so I think that's still kicking in and 
in certain cases I can think of is making some people make slightly dubious decisions. Mm. <laughs> well, at least one of the other bits in your piece is when you talk about being on a plane and this couple asking whether you could move seats because they wanted to sit together. Do you th- I mean, do you think there's a sort of hierarchy where a couple, you know, yes, think I do. That they I, I thought it was absolutely awful that, you know, I refused cause I, because, um, as I said, I wanted, I had already got this very nice seat at the window to just watch the sunrise over the American desert. I couldn't believe the stewardess would, then she made this old lady move, move into the centre of the thing. She was on a window. I couldn't, I think it's definitely a hierarchy. It's very bad, very bad. Because uh, they were retired people. I mean, it's not like they were, you know. I think they'd be sick of each other by then. Quite nice to have a And so, would you encourage people to, you know, try single life? I suppose it's a bit hard if you're already married, but do you think it's something worth? I think considering? if you have any any little doubt, I wrote this recently in a piece, and you've got to try and listen to that and not think, oh my god, everyone else is doing it, and I need the Instagram picture. of coming out of church with confetti in my hair because everyone else has got that. I think that is the real sort of panic that, again, women my age sort of start feeling. And so in a slightly sort of lemming-like way, mm-hmm. everyone starts doing the same thing. They do. And I think you've, it's really it's really hard to resist that. I feel it as well. You feel sort of, you know, as if you're at school again and you're the odd one out and you're the last one being picked for the team. But life is, is very, very long and you don't necessarily yeah. want to be with that person for 50 years, so just think more carefully. But also what you've done, also, it's not fair on the man, is it? Yeah, exactly. If you're just using him for that reason. How much worse would it have been in 10 years' time to get divorced with, you know, two mm. children? And mm. Yeah, that's what I try and console myself with. Do you think it gets easier being single when you get a bit older? or Do you, do you think at this particular age, with everyone getting married, it's just a more I think obvious pressure? This age, I think my age is quite hard. I was saying this, not hopefully in a too bitter way the other day to a friend of mine but I was saying I think now is the hard bit because all we go to is happy marriages and there are happy young families around us and it's all marvellous and I said give it a few years and the divorces will start kicking in and it sounds so miserable but it's true look That's at the stats right we can't argue with the stats and it is true so that was my sort of yeah slightly miserable less pet talk that I was giving to a girlfriend <laughs> Lisa do you, do you agree with that? So I think it's more difficult at Safar's age 34 I mean I, I mean I, it's much easier for me obviously I've also got I, I enjoy doing writing I, I've got grandchildren I'm kind of I've got things I, I enjoy doing I don't really mind I might have I mean I've got a friend of my age who's has um, hadn't had sex for she said about 40 years I think the woman who told me was exaggerating but she suddenly hitched up she's incredibly happy with this 80 year old man Sweet. so I mean I don't rule anything out but I mean I'm sure she never thought that was going to happen hmm. Thank you, Sophia and Elisa. And that's it for this week. You can pick up the week's issue and read everything we've talked about, as well as more from Nick Cohen, Joan Collins and Robert Toombs. And if you subscribe to the magazine via spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, we'll even throw in a £20 Amazon voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. (laughs) 